This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Salmon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the different elements of John's construction and consider some of the scholarly theories and observations that have been made over the years, seeing what there might be to learn in those possibilities. Yeah, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off in the last episode. We're using the first four chapters of Dr. Gray Burge's book, Interpreting the Gospel of John. Uh, we kind of talked through chapter one, two, and four in our last episode. And one of my favorite chapters was chapter three. Like I remember reading it and just, I was just giggling at my table in my house as I read it. I was like, oh, I just <laughs> I love all the goodies in here. Um, because of what it was doing to my brain um, and is making my head explode. It was wonderful. So, um, yeah, I thought I would – it probably won't be a super long discussion, but I thought I would just use one episode just to kind of hone in on this home in. I keep getting told I use those words incorrectly. Home and hone. Who knew? Apparently a lot of people other than me. Uh, which, which one are you trying to say? I'm trying to home in like a homing pigeon. I'm trying to home in on one chapter. Rather I mean, than rather than hone my skills, yeah, they're they're actually somewhat interchangeable. Well, you know who you need to talk to, Brent Billings, and the whole Bayma world needs to know this. Reed Dent, he's the one <laughs> that ridicules me endlessly about the words that I use. Well, yeah. So the thing about dictionaries that I think most people don't understand. <laughs> Here is... we go on our short episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, you shouldn't make these promises because then, then you, you know, then you talk and things happen. <laughs> but yeah, so dictionaries are descriptive of the language. So in the dictionary, it says that hone in is another way of saying home in. I think home in is the original phrase, but people quote unquote misuse it so often that it has come to mean the same thing. So in the dictionary, it says that it is another way of saying it. Um, you can argue about, you know, the origins of that phrase and when it shifted. Um, but the fact is, people use it so often that the dictionary has said, this is what this means, even though some people might not like it. Man, all I know is that the introduction that hasn't been made yet that's going to blow up this universe is going to be Brent Billings and Derek Rohr. When we get the two of you in the same room, it's 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 going to be gloriously it's going to be glorious one direction or another the world will either implode or explode with goodness i'm not sure which but it's going to be wonderful while we're here we should also talk about the other misunderstood resource that we have oh fantastic wikipedia or encyclopedias in general they are considered tertiary sources so they are supposed to be referencing something that is referencing a primary source if wikipedia if whatever you're reading on Wikipedia sounds like a primary source and isn't citing something else, you're, you're off the rails, like get out of there. And Wikipedia editors are pretty good at like, Hey, saying, Hey, this needs a citation. We need some kind of, but if there's no citation there, like you're probably in shaky territory. So there's, there's the other thing. Amen. And amen, man. All right. Well, I'm ready to home in on chapter three. <laughs> All right. <laughs> of uh, <laughs> Dr. Birch's book. One of my favorite intros to an episode on the Baymont podcast. Oh, he, he starts off this chapter telling this great story about how he got to go meet one of his favorite scholars, um, C.K. Barrett. Um, and he himself had just become a new John scholar, is how I read this. I can't 
remember seeing well, 1980. So it would have been towards the beginning of his scholarly career. And he gets to go spend time with C.K. Barrett, and he walks in, and they're having a conversation. One of the first things uh, he says that that Barrett uh, says to him is, um, since you're researching the fourth gospel, Mr. Burge, perhaps you could explain the peculiar ending at John 14, 31. Dr. Burge says, I well remember my thoughts as if they were yesterday. 1431? What did 1431 mean? I panicked. Things were definitely not going as I had planned. Look at John 1431. So go ahead, uh, Brent, if you have it, give me John 1431, and I'm going to have you read something else here in just a moment, but go ahead. I'm actually going to back up a little bit into 30 just to get the full sentence. I love it. Uh, 30 says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. Verse 31, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Okay, so the verse ends with, come now, let us leave. I'm back to reading Burge here. Notice that Jesus has been in the upper room since chapter 13, no doubt celebrating the final Passover. At 1431, he ends his teaching and is dismissing the group. But then he goes on to talk for another 86 more verses. Jesus does not finally leave Jerusalem and cross the Kidron Valley until verse 18.1. And we pointed this out, Brent, when we walked through here. We pointed out this awkward, man, how does this work? And and I gave my, like, again, because I was saving this conversation till after, I gave my conversation about Here's how I harmonize those verses. Here's what I think happened. Here's what I think is most plausible, which I still stand by. But go ahead and give us verse 18.1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. That's verse what? 18.1. What happens in chapter 17, Brent? Uh, Jesus is praying. This is where he prays. Where is he praying? Uh... Well, we thought it was in the garden. But we did kind of talk about how how awkward that was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because verse 18, the the neck after his prayer, give me verse 18, 1a again. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. All right. Here's, so the prayer was not in the garden. Well, and that's the huge question, right? So that's going to, that, let's keep, we're going to keep coming back to this situation because it's going to represent what this whole chapter deals with and why it makes my, my brain giggle. Um, I don't know if that, what that means, but it makes my brain giggle. So I'm going back <laughs> to the, I'm, I'm quoting the book here again. What is going on here? Did Jesus stand outside the door from 15 verse 1 to 1726? Was it on the threshold of the upper room? Or as B.F. Westcott thought, did he teach and pray en route to the Kidron Valley, stopping perhaps at the temple itself? That's exactly what my position was, if you remember. Or have some chapters in John been switched around? That makes some folks uncomfortable, but we'll talk about that some more. Should chapter 14 immediately precede chapter 18? Note further in 16.5 how Jesus complains that no one has asked him. We pointed this out too, Brent. Do you remember? Nobody has asked him where you are going. But if you turn back to 13.36, you see Peter has asked Jesus that exact question. Why does 16.5 follow 13.36? There are all these indications that feel like John's been kind of rearranged 
if that makes sense. Now, that's a textual critic assuming that, making some assumptions, but there's some real good reasons. Once you kind of look at that and see it, you, it's hard to unsee that. You're like, man, it sure reads a whole lot better. Like if you were literally to chop those pieces up and put them in the order that feels right and then read it straight through, it reads really well. <laughs> now you have to like do some adjustment. Like you have to take the after he was praying out of 18.1. But if you take that phrase out of 18.1 and put it on the end of John 14.31, that reads pretty well, doesn't it, Brent? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hold on to that thought. We'll hold on to those thoughts. What we're, what we're looking at here and wrestling with is what, is what Burge and others call, he'll, he'll, he'll quote a bunch of others in this chapter, but what they refer to in this chapter three of his book as literary seams, literary seams, like they have, it's almost like if you think of a cloth, you can see these seams that have been sewn together, implying that those pieces weren't always together, if that makes sense. They're not literal seams. I'm not saying a literal seam in a parchment somewhere. <laughs> I'm saying a, a literary seam. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And, and so this whole chapter is kind of about what do you do with this puzzle of li- now, again, for some of us, we're like getting real nervous. I don't like, I don't like where this conversation is going, Marty. Like, what are you doing? And what are you suggesting? And I, I know this just thinking about this stuff makes me better. I love to think critically about I'm fine with the gospel of John. I had no problem. Another reason why I waited Brent until after we were done to do this. But I have no problem. In fact, let me go back here and grab the last paragraph of this first part of chapter three here. He says this. He says, we have a couple of assignments as we begin this task of looking at these literary seams. First, can we learn something about how this gospel was built? Does it betray any sources? What if the fourth gospel is really made up of a variety of editorial layers? perhaps collections of stories about Jesus and miracles that were combined with lengthy accounts of his teachings. If this is true and based on good evidence, we will learn a great deal more about our text. Second, we need to stand back and look at the gospel as a whole in its present canonical canonical form. So in its present form in our Bibles, can we discern a logic and a symmetry? Now, what I did in our study, Brent, is I flipped those two. He said first, second, and I decided to start with second and then do first. So I would, I would flip it. I would have said this. First, we need to stand back and look at the gospel as a whole. In its present canonical form, can we discern a logic and a symmetry? So where I got detracted, distracted a moment ago was I was saying I have no problem studying John in, its for, in the current canonical form that it's in my Bible. I did a whole verse-by-verse study all the way through. John, without having to do any gymnastics with the literary form. I'm fine with that. And I know that this next part makes us uncomfortable, but that's where I feel like I get better. So that's my second point. Second, can we learn anything about how this gospel was built? Does it betray any sources? It's that critical, that textual criticism after the fact, not before, after the fact that helps me think creatively and go, is there something going on there? What if that was the case? What, hap- what happens there? What happens that? Am I uncomfortable with that? Yes, I am. So I'm not going to go that far, but is there something there that I like? What am I looking at? What about this? What about that? See, I, f- I feel like the tradition that I was raised in, 
You were, just don't ask the textual criticism questions. Do you believe in the inspired word of God or not? If the answer is yes, then you don't ask any questions that criticize the text. I want to think critically about the text. I want to practice textual criticism because in the process, I get to know the text so much better. And it, and it, and it, and it makes my brain giggle. That's my phrase for this episode. It makes my brain giggle. Yeah, I think so many of us grew up not necessarily, I mean, we didn't know any better, but the people who were teaching us were completely fearful of feeling uncomfortable. And so we were just taught to avoid any discomfort at all. But I think what's actually going on is that if we're not uncomfortable at some point, we're probably not really learning very much. Yep. And I also know that there are people that listen to our podcast that aren't uncomfortable. They love this space. They go even further than I go. They might be in seminary and they practice textual criticism, you know, three times a week in their class and they eat, you know, textual criticism for lunch. And I mean, that's, that's great. That's fine. We also have a ton of people that are completely unfamiliar with that world. And those worlds have often been separate, like the seminarians get to sit in seminary and do this work, and the people in the pews have no idea that this happens, no idea that there's any questions to be asked. And part of what I love about the Baymont podcast is trying to smash that gap together and bring these worlds together, because I don't think that the people in the pews, and that would include me, because I've never, I don't have a seminary degree, I don't think we're incapable of asking these questions and gleaning benefit from that. And that's part of what I love about the world we live in. So it's part of what we do. I don't know how to convince someone that it's okay, but like if you'll try asking these questions at least once, you can come out on the other side. It's like, oh, actually, I still do believe in God. So I guess this is okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like yeah. I, I didn't lose my faith by asking these questions. If anything, it's only strengthened it. Absolutely. Because you often come out on the other end, like I do, and go, no, I still disagree with that. But I think I picked up some really great stuff along the way. And yeah, you come out on the other end and and yeah, just asking the question doesn't mean you end up agreeing with the answer that's given in front of you. But asking the question is such a healthy, beautiful journey. Let's see. What do we, what do we have here? He has three points in this section about uh, literary themes. He says, first, we might look for stylistic evidences of additional editorial hands. In Pentateuchal, what a fun word, uh, in studies of the Pentateuch crit criticism, uh, there is As often... In the Torah. Yes, exactly. In Torah criticism, there has been attempted by tracing different forms of the divine name, uh, resulting in the much disputed uh, Wellhausen source. That's document hypothesis that we talked about in episode 82. So he says, we're familiar with this in things like Torah. Why not be familiar with it in things like the gospel? Is there anything there to indicate similar principles? And again, maybe you're uncomfortable with that, but it's a great question. As we look at these literary themes, it's something to be looking for. Are there different authors or is there a consistent style? And again, this is where I go back to last episode, and we looked at all those stylistic things that were John's style, John's motifs, things like, let me go to my notes, things like ironies and misunderstandings. How can there be such consistency throughout the gospel if we have multiple authors at play? It's one of the reasons why I, I love to ask this question, and I don't land on a community writing the gospel. I think John wrote the gospel, but maybe there's more I can learn. 
but I don't end up landing in that same space. One other possibility I thought of on that front since uh, we recorded the last episode is maybe John did die after he had written most of his gospel and then his community or his disciples finished the writing. Or I, I think you're headed in the exact right direction. Or for me, I wonder if John wrote his gospel and the early Christian community rearranged it and maybe even some of the other gospels for their purposes. And how did that impact what we ended up receiving later? Again, that might make people too uncomfortable, but I wonder if John's completely John's creation and the early church's redesign, or I shouldn't say early church, I should say the Johannians community redesign of what he did. So that's those are the questions I actually want to ask Dr. Burge if we get him on here in our next episode. I want to ask him about some of those theories. I think some of the things we've referenced before about Alexander Shia. I want to talk. I want to talk to Doctor Burge if he's familiar with Shia's work and what his opinion might be on that. But this quadratos theory of the four gospels being used by the early church in a very intentional, almost discipleship training, manualistic type way. Um, did that involve some redesign, not rewriting? I'm not even suggesting redaction. I'm saying I'm noticing literary seams. Were these pieces moved around on purpose by the church community for a particular reason? That makes you uncomfortable? Reject it. Toss it in the trash. Now, at this point in history, are they still using scrolls or are they using individual sheets of, you know, parchment or whatever? I don't know if we we would call it we would call it parchment. I'm not sure you'd be you'd be having scrolls with these well you probably would on yeah gospel the size of john uh, but it would be more parchment less scroll and like if you're thinking parchment you're thinking probably more accurate too than if you're thinking like a well-designed scroll like Torah. because may, maybe john wrote it and then he handed it to one of his disciples to go start making copies and he dropped it on the way and he's like, oh, and he was too embarrassed to like go get the order right again. All right. Well, there's some more, there's some good examples here that might help us out some more. So I'll keep reading, but I only got through one. Here's two more, two more points he makes. Second, we might look for ideological tendencies, passages in which rival points of view are represented. So, and this would be a reason why the Johannian or early church community might rearrange something if it helps them deal with and speak to the things that they're, they're, they're like, John gave us all the right pieces. What if we just went from verse 14 to verse 15, 16, 17, and then to verse 18, look at what that does to the conversation. Oh, that's brilliant. Those might be reasons that are at play. A third tool is more promising. We might look for contextual evidence. In Torah criticism, some years after parallel or contrasting accounts, things like the creation narratives. We talked about how many different creation narratives there were. That's a good example of contextual evidence of how we're supposed to understand and hear. So that would be things like the Hellenistic context. That would be instructive of how we might hear these accounts. So then the next section kind of takes off from there and starts talking about contextual evidence. Uh, he ends that section with this paragraph, which I like. These phenomena, basically what we've been talking about the whole time, are so common that they have been re- that they have received a te- they have received a technical name. In 1907, uh, Edward Schwartz coined the term aporia 
for these quote-unquote difficulties. This term was taken up by Robert Fortna and Howard Teeple. It comes from the Greek aporia, which means a difficult passing uh, or to be at a loss, which describes either an impassable maritime strait, aporos, or in debate, a difficulty in logic. In English, the earliest work of this problem, done by F. Warburton Lewis, uh, followed Schwartz by three years. So there's a whole group of scholars that basically coined the term aporia. And an aporia means, what do you do with these get with these difficulties? What do you do with these literary seams? What do you do with these textual hiccups? What do you do with these things that appear to be off, wrong, don't line up in the manuscripts? Because the manuscripts are strikingly consistent, Brent, but they're not 100% consistent. What do you do when you have some consistent inconsistencies. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Because that's one thing to have an inconsistency, kind of like a one-off, an outlier. It's another thing to have two or three instances of an inconsistency. That's like, okay, wait a minute. That inconsistency is rather consistent. So what do you do with that? Oh, let's see here. What are these aporias and how do they how do they evidence seams in the gospel's narrative? Well, let's get he has like he has a whole list. I'm not going to read the whole list here. This is only going to make you want to freak out if you're already uncomfortable with the situation. He has 13, that's not a very Jewish number. He has 13 different aporias that he's identified. One of them would be the one we've already went over, which is um the uh, John fourteen thirty one to eighteen verse one aporia that would be an aporia. Here's here's one that's not too daunting. Uh, he, it's number three in his list. Jesus came into the land of Judea in in, ver, in chapter three verse twenty two. Okay, Jesus came into the land of Judea in three twenty two. The problem is that he had already been in Judea since he attended a Passover festival in chapter two twenty three through three twenty one. So he's already in Judea when he arrives in Judea in 322. There's a aporia. Now, there might be ways to explain that. I'm not saying this aporia is overly problematic or there there might be a perfectly good way to explain that. I think we did that when we went verse by verse through John. We didn't have any problem doing verse by – we didn't have to rearrange John. We didn't have to cut it up or talk about literary seams. But from a textual criticism perspective – that's a great question to ask. It feels like there's a literary seam there, like that's been rearranged somehow. Let's see what's another one. Is that similar to the like what we first talked about um, with Abraham and the blood path covenant where God said blah, 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 and God said blah, blah, blah without any conversation in the middle from Abraham. So it was not a back and forth. It was God said, and then there was some empty space some empty time. And then God said, is it like that where Jesus went to Judea? Well, it's, and then there's this empty space of time. Who knows what he did, but like, is that like, does that happen in a geographical sense in the same way that it does in that dialogue sense that we first looked at with Abraham? I'm not sure. And in the same kind of literary form, like it's, it's a literary tool in the, in the Hebrew, I'm not sure that's, but it is how we explained it at least a couple times when we went through John verse by verse, and you can do that. Textual criticism is going to say, now that's a pretty big arbitrary leap to just decide that that's what's taking place in the text. Does it make more, is there more integrity 
behind assuming that there's something going on with a literary scene. So you could say, well, maybe there's just a bunch of time there and that explains that. Or a textual critic is going, I think there's evidence that there's more going on there. And that's where we get to wrestle. That's where we get to think. That's where we get to toy around with the ideas. Here's one of my favorite ones. Listen, for me, this is like, there's so much evidence for this one. Um, I, I, I'm not even I'm I'm not even interested in debating whether or not it's true or not. I, it's so undeniably true for me. The story of the adulteress in chapter seven fifty three through eight eleven interrupts the the festival of tabernacles discourse, but has theological connections with it. Here is a case where manuscript evidence is significant. This is pro- probably flo- this is probably a floating gospel unit that entered John late. So almost every Bible, well, every Bible that's worth its soap at all, is going to say in the footnotes that the story of the adulterous woman is not in your earliest manuscripts. Why? Because it's not. (laughs) It's not in your earliest manuscripts. It is, check this out, that story, as it appears in John, is in the Gospel of Luke, some of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke, Brent Billings. It's shown up there. Uh, right after Luke twenty one thirty eight. Hmm. So that story, that's one of those consistent inconsistencies. It is not in your earliest manuscripts. It is in some of Luke's earliest manuscripts, but not all of them. And then later it shows up consistently in John. So it's in none of John's early, but it's in almost all of John's late manuscripts. And it does show up more than a few times in Luke's early manuscripts. So that feels to me like they took that story and the early church community, somebody, I'm not saying makes the text uninspired at all. I'm just saying the early community took it and stuck it in John. If they stuck that story in John, are they rearranging other portions of John as well? That's where my brain goes. You can see why my brain giggles. This doesn't bother me. I don't stay up at night losing. Listen, and, and, and I know that this, this doesn't compute for some. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Like, there's just no question about that for me. It's too powerful. It's too amazing. It's too, I'm too fascinated by it. I love it on every page, at every level. I, I just am so unconcerned about whether this person tinkered with that or John is John, or John wrote it, and then it got rearranged, or Luke is actually Luke, and Mark is actually Mark, and did Paul write all 13 letters? I'm just so unconcerned with that, because I'm just so impressed with the Bible as we have it. I'm so convinced, I'm so compelled by its inspiration and authority, that how it came to be, just, I, I think what I'm trying to say is my belief and inspiration is not tied to a particular kind of uh, origination. My belief and inspiration stands by itself. And the questions about origination, how it originated, how it came to be, redaction, any of those things for me are all just fun exercises and textual criticism. But they don't ever make me question like, but is John the word of God? Does it have something to say to me? Is it is it God breathed and is the spirit of God moving through the account? Of course, of course it is in its canonical form. I don't even have to fix the scroll. Um, 
But was the scroll different originally? Who knows? I just find it so much fun to, to consider. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. No, I don't think you're crazy. The The idea that, I mean, it's just, it's like, do you, do you believe as a human that you can mess up what God is doing in the world, that you're more powerful than what, than the hand of God in like, if he wants his text to be a particular way, he's going to make that happen through whatever means he deems best. Right. And if we believe that, then we should be able to step back from this stuff and say, okay, maybe that's how it happened. But, but God's hand was still involved in that. And what we have today is what he intended us to have. Yeah. Yep. That, that gives voice to where my head and heart are at. And reminder, I think I've said this about 20 times. You don't have to agree with any of this. You don't have to be, you don't have to be comfortable with the things Marty is comfortable with. You don't have to be uncomfortable with the things that Marty is uncomfortable with. Uh, This is all about thinking critically. Um, Listen, if you make me choose between inspiration or textual criticism, there is no hesitation in me at all. I'm choosing inspiration because I have experienced what the, what the word of God does, Old and New Testament, um, first and second Testament. I, I, the scriptures are flat out freaking amazing. I love them. I'm not bothered by textual criticism, but if you think I'm going to sacrifice my passion and conviction for the text because of some fun things that scholars ask questions about, you're crazy because I'm not, but I have fun with the fun questions that scholars ask about this stuff. It is, it, it, it just, it makes my brain giggle. Okay. Um, so, uh, Burge comes out of that section and just does some assessment. He has a section on just, let's just assess this. What is our, what are, what's our assessment and the importance of these seams, these aporias? He makes a couple observations. Most scholars are in consensus that there are a host of sources at play. It's not just John inventing. And again, hopefully you're hearing me say <laughs> good things. John's not just inventing a gospel. This is rooted in histo- in, in history and in historical sources. John's getting his his work from source work, his own experiences, the experiences of others, other early church records, whatever you want to do. This there are a host of sources at play. Most scholars are in consensus about that. Burge says the the process of writing and compiling was far more complex than we have ever imagined. I love this point because I think it's going to lead to some really good discussion if we get to interview Doctor Burge. I'll say that again: the process of writing and compiling. Basically, what you and I have just been discussing, Brent, that process, however John came to be, was far more complex than we have ever imagined. And I love that. That intrigues me. That excites me. My Bible heart skips a beat when I hear that. (laughs) The goodies. Okay. I mean, maybe a personal example for you, like when you sat down and wrote your book, did, did that process work the same way that you had imagined writing a book? was like before you actually did it? No way. Yeah, uh, that was totally different. There were some things that I totally expected and were true, and I came to experiences I wanted to. And there were things that caught me by surprise and content that I didn't even plan that just came out of nowhere. And yeah, absolutely, 100%. And since we're talking about I'll just throw in a pre-order link Uh, for your new book coming in February. (laughs) Brent, you kill me. All right. So here, let's let's do a case study. If you're not totally freaking out yet, if you're not, you know, if you're not over on the side of the gym throwing up because you're so uncomfortable as you listen to us on your treadmill, um, let's do a case study. Uh, 
Brent, do you want to go to John chapter five? We're going to give some examples of, he does this in his book. So if you have his book, you're going to see this in front of you on the page. And he has bolded the parts that I'm going to point out as Brent reads. And the beautiful thing about that is if you have it in front of you, you have the opportunity in his book to read the passage and take the bolded aporias out. So take the aporias out and just read it. And you go, golly, that sounds like that was what it probably was originally. No doubt. Um, But go ahead and and start reading chapter five, uh, Brent. And I'm going to point out the aporias that he notes. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic... Here's an aporia right here. Which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. There you go. There's your aporia. <laughs> uh, is, is aporia just what we're going to call anytime they reference Aramaic? It's because that's how I under... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize where you're going there. Sure, it's definitely an aporia in my book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the just the phrase which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Yep. He would say that seems to be some kind of an insertion. Okay. If you read that paragraph without that, it reads perfectly in the Greek seamlessly. Without it, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. See how that reads? But somebody has taken the time to maybe it was John. I, I I'm I'm even fine if you're like John went through and did a second edition of his gospel. I'm okay, great. But that a, a literary, a textual critic is looking at that and going, "Man, that feel that doesn't feel right." I take that out; feels perfect. Okay, you can disagree with that. You can totally disagree with that. But go ahead, Brent. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie: the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Uh, verse four is already taken out by the NIV, so I'm assuming that's an aporia. <laughs> sure. That's a manuscript problem, but yes. Uh, actually, it's it's even uh, the end of verse three is taken out as well as all of yep. verse four. Yep. Um, so anyway, that's not there. Uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Here comes an aporia. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. There's your aporia. Okay. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I mean, I guess, yeah, if it is an aporia. It's unnecessary. Like there are... They're already saying that it's the Sabbath. Yep. yep. So, okay. Um, so without that, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. Allah forbids you to carry your mat. Okay. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Here comes an aporia. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, 
the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. There's your poria. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Here comes another aporia. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, some scholars would call the entire next paragraph an aporia. I'm not sure I would see the need for that. But they've identified this entire next paragraph as like a poetic summation of what I'm supposed to learn as a reader. Jesus didn't actually, now I'm not suggesting this. Some textual critics are going to say Jesus didn't actually say this next paragraph, but the author is putting it in there to help the reader understand the point. Okay. So let me, I'm going to read 15 and then I'm going to skip 16 and then I'm going to read 17 and then I'm going to skip 18 and 19 through 23 and jump straight to 24. Sure. This whole paragraph. Yep. I'm just going to read that and see how it sounds. Yep. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Very truly. I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Sorry, that should also be a part of the aporia. You should jump all the way down to sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. I don't, I don't know where that is. Is that even in chapter five? No, it's six. That's the beginning of, so all the rest of chapter five is actually wow. gone. And some scholars might okay. from the original, from John's original. Okay. Not manuscripts. We're not talking manuscripts. We're just talking John's original version. Because it did read well when I jumped to 24. But apparently, I need to jump. And I would, I would be fine with that. I, I would. That's how. I, if you were to put me in a room and have me let me have an opinion, which would be meaningless. But if you did, I would, I would do that. <laughs> not, not meaning, not entirely meaningless. Just not as meaningful. You got to give yourself some credit, Marty. I, I am fine with the first aporios that we pointed out. If we, if we say some redactor early church, at, I'm fine with that. I think I'm. Like, yeah, 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 that, that sounds pretty good. I am uncomfortable with the whole end of chapter five going away. I, I mean, that but is... I completely understand. I completely understand why they look at that, see that, and come to that conclusion. I don't think it's crazy. I don't think it's asinine. I, I just look at it and go, eh, I prefer having John have that in there. Yeah. Well, and that's not even, that's not even the end of John five. Like, that is more than half of John five going away. If that's, uh, well, Maybe from from nineteen on uh, is is chapter six verse one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, yeah. It's not what he has in his book. That's what confuses me. But yeah, well, yeah, and and that would be a pretty radical uh, take. But um, maybe if I just skip eighteen and go straight to nineteen, there you go. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, and that's, I mean, that could be another one of those situations where it's like Jesus said, and Jesus said, like they're, they're sitting there like, what, trying to figure out what he's saying. You know, that might be a great reason why they actually think that isn't where it ought to be <clears throat> because of that. Because I don't think the Greek functions in the same way the Hebrew does. It would be nice and clean if it did, but I think a Greek scholar is going to say, uh, Greek doesn't work that way. Mm, okay. But you can see why that's a great reason why a scholar is going to look at that and be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. 
that couldn't have been there originally. It must have been moved. Yeah. I, if you look at verse 18 as like a parenthetical, and that's one of the things I want to ask, ask Dr. Purge possibly. It's like, how, how does the Greek indicate yeah. something is parenthetical or not? Like, is that yep. just interpretive or is there some sort of actual indication within? Um, but if you just take out 18, that's like a parenthetical explanation by John. And then you're back to Jesus talking. And maybe even maybe even the first part of 19 isn't there. Jesus gave them this answer. Like maybe that part is just added because of John's parenthetical. So if you, if you just consider it all one big quote yep. in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working very truly. I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. Yep. He can do yep. like that reads perfectly yep. well. Sure. Okay. I get I absolutely good. Cause if you put the, what we were calling an aporia, if we put that other and like, then you have to have Jesus saying like, they would have put that in as part of the redaction. Yeah, I totally get what you're getting at, and that's a perfectly good. I like that, and that's why jumping from uh, jumping from 17 all the way down to 24 worked equally well because that paragraph begins with "Very truly, I tell you, it's just the it's just a continuation of a quote uh, by Jesus." So, like that, that's why that works equally well. But I don't think it's necessary to take out that 19 through 23 section, except for the very opening part of 19. Because if you're taking out the parenthetical of 18, you don't need the first part of 19. And Jesus is just talking the whole time. Absolutely. So I could see, I could see those. I like it. Um, well, let me just keep moving here because we're going to have a nice short episode today, Brent. Um, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to have me read all of John 5. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's see here. Uh, here's, what, here's what Dr. Burge says in, in his, one of his follow-up paragraphs. I like this. I've highlighted it. What happened here? Have two sources come together? Uh, was an ancient miracle story joined to a lengthy discourse at some point? This phenomenon appears throughout John. It's not just this one case, but multiple cases throughout John. Discourses stand side by side with miracle stories. Uh, this is also, by the way, related to some theories that I love about the synoptics. But uh, seems to be a teaching, seems to be a form that they used, a format they used to teach people in the early church, uh, in their, in their accounts, in their records, in their narratives. So I find that be super interesting. Uh, he goes on to talk about another scholar named Brown and his, how Brown answered this question. And he had these like four different stages of how John was written. There was stage one. And then there was, there was like four different, uh, author groups at play. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I love looking at the diagram. I love the theory. It makes complete sense to me. Um, I would not agree with it, and I don't love, but the but the diagram is sure fun to look at if you have uh, if you have Burge's book. Um, uh, that's on page seventy five, but uh, a ton of fun there. And then he closes with, if anybody enjoyed our look at the book of signs versus the book of glory, Doctor Burge outlines that in pretty good detail in the last part of this chapter. Basically, goes through shows in both diagram form and comments on it, and then puts it in written prose outline form, the book of signs versus the book of glory. So just a super, I really enjoyed uh, how he outlined that and put that together. So my favorite chapter, here's the deal. If you guys were in love with that episode, awesome. I'm thrilled. I love to nerd out about this stuff. I know there will be people out there that do as well, and they'll just love the seeds that get planted here and what it will 
help them do and where their brain will go. I mean, that's why we do this episode. For the rest of you that are like, that whole thing made me uncomfortable. I don't get it. I hated that. Great. We'll just set that aside. Throw that one in the trash. Don't even have to write me the angry email. And we'll just keep moving on to the next episode of the Baymont podcast. But uh, man, does this stuff just light my Bible study fire? I just love... I love to look into things. I love to consider things. I love to examine things. I love to ask questions. I love to decide what I'm comfortable with and what I'm uncomfortable with. And I don't want anybody else to do my thinking for me. And I don't think anybody else that's hearing my voice should. I think we all should wrestle with the Bible and do it in community and and wrestle with what we what we think and what we believe and what we understand and not use it to divide ourselves, but use it to just really enjoy being people of the text. So that's my rambling. Uh, that's my rambling rant, Brent. I don't know if it's helpful for anybody, but I had fun reading that book. Yeah, and I have not uh, read all of it yet myself. So just just to clarify, does Doctor Burge fall on the uh, Book of Glory side of that? He sure does. Yeah. Well, there you go. That just that just affirms our decisions. I think. Heck yeah, it does. I love it. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, we've talked about it enough. Hopefully, hopefully we do end up uh, connecting with him, and uh, you won't know anything about that process. He'll just show up next week. That would be the ideal. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, if not, I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> uh, but we will definitely be back next week with something, whether that is Doctor Burge uh, on our podcast or not. So uh, we do appreciate you joining us for this journey through John. Uh, I I suspect that. This is not the last time John will come up on our podcast. Um, it's been great, though. Absolutely, it has. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I am at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Check out uh, our show notes. Pick up uh, Dr. Burge's book if you haven't already. And thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast this week. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>